Hey everyone, welcome to the Family Business Leadership Podcast with Robin Lechinger. Every day, Robin leads and guides family businesses as a lawyer and board member. This series, brought to you by SMB Interim Management and Yates Advisors, focuses on major challenges facing today's family-owned businesses. Each podcast will showcase frontline leaders exploring their personal experiences and best practice solutions. If you're a family leader, board member, shareholder, or professional advisor, you will welcome proven approaches to the challenges of governance, succession, leadership, strategy, multi-generation ownership, and more. And now, let's hear from Robin as she introduces us to today's guest. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Family Business Leadership Podcast. Our first guest is Dick Seaman, the chairman and former CEO of Seaman Corporation, a $200 million industrial fabric manufacturer. Dick, who himself is a second-generation family business owner, is the living embodiment of family business owners being stewards of their family's business. Dick, welcome. You are the perfect first guest for our Family Business Leadership Podcast. Your stewardship mindset is what has been a guiding force in Seaman Corporation's growth from a $10 million company that you took over from your dad to what it is today, a $200 million enterprise, all still being owned by your family. So let's start, Dick, with what it means to you to be a family business owner. What I've learned through the decades of my career with our family business is that family businesses are a unique treasure to this country uh, and to our society. And they are a unique treasure to the families that own them. I think the paradigm is that children of founders or third generation members of family businesses tend to think of them as entitlement as a um, way in which they get the revenue for their lifestyles, whether they actually are working in it or not. And the reality is that they're really stewards of the treasure because as you pointed out, there are a number of families whose livelihood depends on how well you as owners and you as the leader of a family business run that business for both growth and long-term sustainability. In thinking about a family business or thinking about shareholders and family businesses as stewards, what would you say is necessary to get everybody aligned into that same vision? Well, I think it takes a great deal of communications to do that. I also think that in our country and our culture, you have to showcase true multi-generational family businesses and the values they provide not only to the owners, but both to the customers the employees, also to the communities, in contrast to what we see being showcased in that are public companies, private equity companies, you know, people who build businesses to harvest them. And that's a big job to do that because this idea of responsible stewardship in family businesses for multi-generational purposes is a hidden secret, is, is the way I would look at it. I look at it as in a sense, if you own those businesses and or if you run those businesses, it's almost a higher calling because what you're doing is trying to build something for the future, not something that can support your current lifestyle. 
and that philosophy is ever increasing, or build something that you want to harvest. So when you talk in your book, and by the way, for those who may not be aware, you wrote a book called A Vibrant Vision, The Entrepreneurship of Multi-Generational Family Business. And let me just pause there for a moment. I've seen enough out there. I've been to enough of these programs. People could really benefit from what you have to say. And most importantly, because you've lived it, there's an authenticity and a genuineness to how you describe what you're doing and what you've done and what your family's doing and what they've done. Could you share why you wrote the book? That's a very good question, Robin. Uh, In the back of my mind, when I was working as CEO for uh, nearly 40 years in the business, I had often thought about writing a book, but that was going to be a really, really daunting task because I didn't really know what that would take. Once I retired as CEO and became chairman, the excuse of not having the time sort of went away. (laughs) So I thought about it for a longer time period. And I felt that the success of our business in terms of its growth in an industrial fabric business that is highly competitive is the result of business processes that I focused on and put in place over my career in the business. So what I wanted to do was identify those and illustrate how they had worked in our business. As I worked with a writing consultant to find out whether there was an opportunity for a book of this nature, she pointed out, well, you know, there's a lot of books that are written about how to grow a business. And there's a lot of business books that are written about family business, but I don't find anything out there that talks about how you want to grow a business, how you accomplish that specifically to be multi-generational. And as I thought about that, it made a lot of sense because the kind of decisions you make strategically, if you want your business to be multi-generational, will be significantly different than the kinds of decisions you make if you're just running this business to be for lifestyle purposes or you want to harvest the business down the road. So I was going to try to accomplish both things as I, as I wrote this book. One was to really focus on what I think are critical business processes to grow a sustainable business. And then what are the additional things that you need to do if you wanted to be multi-generational in your family? So you actually melded the two concepts into one. And having read your book, I can say that you absolutely accomplished it. And I can tell you that having recommended your book to many others and having bought many copies of it to give out to others, you've done a great job. I want to go to the beginning of your book where you talk about this 30-10-3 survival ratio. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, that is kind of a generic measure that proves to be true empirically, and particularly in North America and, and to some degree around the world. 30% of the companies that are created survive through the second generation, 10% through the third generation, and only 3% move into the fourth generation. So that's what the 30, 10, 30 amounts to. And, you know, all the kind of data around family business and family business succession seems to validate that ratio. So would it be fair to say that the, one of the goals of your book is to increase that 3% to something much higher, maybe even closer to 30% so that we can have these multi-generational family businesses throughout our country, if not the world. Absolutely. And I learned in other cultures around the world that they're a bit more successful at sustaining family businesses on a multi-generational basis. And their culture in those countries basically put a much higher value on 
family businesses than what we do here. Do me a favor, talk about that experience that you had when you were abroad that lends itself to your understanding about cultures outside of the United States perpetuating their families' businesses, which is different perhaps than we might see here. Boy, that really was driven home to me was at a Harvard program that I went to. I've been fortunate to be in the Young Presidents Organization most of my career, which has exposed me to a lot of these great business concepts. But at our Harvard program that I would go to every year, we'd be broken down into groups of eight people, which we called our CAN groups. And we lived together during the week and we study these cases. And during this one session, these are 150 CEOs from around the world. In this one session, the theme was how to harvest your business. In the week, a predominant number of cases we studied had to do with when and how to sell your business. I had a Korean president uh, in my class, my group of eight, who was the president of a very large construction company in South Korea. And about midway through the week, he just stopped us as one of our study sessions. He says, I don't really understand what we're talking about, harvesting your business. He had been educated in the United States and had worked in the United States for a bit and then went to work in Kuwait, basically did not want to go into the family business. But after he was married and working in Kuwait, he had a son. And as soon as he had a son, he wanted to go back and work in the family business and obviously was very successful there. But he said this concept of harvesting the business, he said, my concept is when I went into my business, my family business, I wanted to leave it in better shape for the next generation than the way I received it. It wasn't even a question in their mind in terms of whether they would sell the business or harvest the business. That's where I got this driven home that this concept, there's other cultures that look at owning a family business as one of stewardship, not one of trying to get the most money out of it that they can. How old were you when you attended this program? Well, I attended it for over 17 years. So I was in my 40s, I would, I would say. I mean, as I'm hearing you, I'm thinking, wow, there was like some epiphany or the light bulb goes off that this is really about stewardship and perpetuating through the generations. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, I, to some degree, although maybe not as much of, a, of an epiphany, because I always literally, certainly as soon as my father passed away, but before that, I wanted to build a business that would survive me. Now, what did that mean? <laughs> okay, uh, It simply meant that you, you really managed the business for the long term. You didn't want to have nepotism in the business. You wanted to be sure that you had good leadership, quality managers when you had a chance to bring them in. And it also caused me to try to benchmark public companies at, at that time rather than other private businesses because I had access to public company information. You know, our business was in Millersburg, Ohio and for most of that time period. Rubbermaid's corporate headquarters were in Worcester, and I was able to network with a lot of those executives there. The Smucker organization was in Oroville, not very far away. So, you know, I would look to those companies to kind of see how, how were they growing and what were the kind of things that they did, and then think about how might I apply that to my little business. But that was all driven by the fact that I wanted to create a business that would survive me. That then led into the concept of stewardship and multi-generational family businesses. That Harvard experience just kind of crystallized that. I like that. Much better way to put it. Crystallized it. So let's now focus, if we could, on some of those business processes. A big component of your book 
is, and I've heard you speak when you and I have talked offline about strategic planning and innovation. And in fact, you state in your book, and I'm quoting now, strategic planning is the heartbeat of a growing company that desires to sustain itself over future generations. Give us some examples of strategic planning at Siemens Corporation. To pick up a little bit on what you said, we talk about strategic planning and innovation. And the first chapter of my book is innovation. And just very simplistically put, if you don't have a culture of innovation, then you're not going to reinvent yourself to become multi-generational. The environment is constantly changing. Services you offer today in all likelihood aren't going to uh, support you even during your lifetime, let alone future generations. So that's where strategic planning comes in, because what you've got to do is keep a pulse on what's that changing environment that's out there and then find a way to either reinvent your business or innovate incrementally to be able to, to manage that. When we first started strategic planning, this will be one example. It was the first time we really brought all of our managers together and we tried to look at what market opportunities might be out there for us. We were not aware as a management group that our chemist was working on a new product to make a very unique fabric for a customer in the military market space. Because we were together and we were looking at future market opportunities, he shed this light to us and we could see that this had a lot of potential. And it was really a, instead of making a PVC fabric, we would coat a urethane fabric that would go into fuel storage tanks that the military would use. These would be above ground collapsible fuel storage tanks that at the time could hold up to 20,000 gallons of fuel. But there were a lot of unique requirements and the urethane fabric we would produce would replace a neoprene fabric that had been used for decades by the military. What it did for our team in the strategic planning process was highlight the real opportunity there, but also let us all know what it was we needed to do to focus all of our resource energy into the creation and development of that product and the support for that particular customer. The result of that strategic planning session, very elementary in terms of how we did it, resulted in our producing this product within a year's time. And it's been a business that has contributed millions of dollars of sales to our business over the course of 30 years. Again, strategic planning to find market opportunities and then get the whole organization focused on trying to make those a reality because they all understand what the opportunity is. When you talk about innovation, and this is something I read in your book, it's my understanding that Siemens requires that every five years, 20% of its revenue comes from new products. Is that something that you implemented well, that's, again, an example of benchmarking that I did early on. And Rubbermaid, which bragged about creating a new product every day, basically their motto for innovation was 30% of their sales had to come from products that didn't exist five years ago. Now, they're in a consumer marketplace. So as we're doing our strategic planning and focusing on innovation to help drive that philosophy in our organization, we basically said we wanted 20% of our sales volume to come from products that did not exist five years ago. And when you set that as a goal, then you have to be constantly innovating and to some degree reinventing yourself. So that's, that's where that came from, was from benchmarking. Did it work? It has worked. Yeah. Yeah. We measure that all the time and we look at it and, you know, for the most part, that's our growth comes from those products that didn't exist five years ago. 
So here's a question for you about innovation. I've often thought that innovation is a little bit of a DNA thing. In other words, you either have that drive to be an inventor, drive to be somebody who comes up with new products like that chemist you talked about, but not everybody on the team can be an inventor. So speak to me about how you create a culture of innovation if not everybody on the team is necessarily seeking to find the next you know, iPhone. Another great question because I think innovation and institutionalizing it into your business in a robust way is one of the biggest challenges that are there. And one of the problems is that in most businesses when they start are started by a founder who's innovative and very entrepreneurial. Not everybody has that in their DNA. And so how do you create that in the culture of your, of your organization as you're growing larger? One of the biggest roadblocks to innovation as a culture in an organization is the success of the organization. An example that I will use is that, you know, as an entrepreneur, when you're trying to create a new product and you're starting your business, I mean, you've got to get sales from that product to make payroll or to put food on your table, whatever. So you have that sense of urgency that's there. As you become more and more successful and you build a R&D department, you don't have that sense of urgency. People can be creative, but they don't necessarily link it to the fact that you've got to commercialize that to generate revenue to help support the, the growth of the business because the rest of the business is going very well. I think also you have to seed your organization. People in business development and in product development have to be entrepreneurial. You have to have find people who basically would love to run their own business. There are a lot of people don't have that and the inertia of a successful organization will make it very difficult to keep that sense of urgency that's required to turn a great idea into a real commercial success in the marketplace. So before we turn to leadership, let's spend a few moments on you and your dad. So your dad's clearly, clearly was an inventor. Yes. And you're clearly an entrepreneur who has a vision. So talk to me about the similarities and dissimilarities between you and your dad that you would then translate into best practices that you could share with our audience about how to perpetuate a business through the generations, given your two different people, yet you seem to have some overlapping similarities. Well, I, you know, my dad was very creative and very hands-on with his, his creativity. I think examples of what he did I just resurrected them again recently to our whole organization so that they could recognize that he looked at technology platforms intuitively and tried to look at how he could solve needs that he perceived in the marketplace out there. And he loved creating products. He did not like running a business. I mean, he kind of, that's why he sent me off to business school because he thought I would get all the answers about how to run a business which I proved to him was not the best way to do it because I lost our largest customer the first year I was running the business. But the similarities is that I had the same thirst for innovation. I'd love to be more hands-on. I'd love to be out in the laboratory and working with things and one-on-one with customers. But I know that if I did it the way my dad did it, our business wouldn't grow. The place I was different was to help bring order, I guess, to the chaos that happens when you're just creating products and, and putting them out there and then moving on to the next product. What I brought, I think, was a love for everything he had and his passion, but I didn't 
I didn't let myself be consumed by that. I started putting in the organizational structures that we need. It, you know, it's those processes in my book. I mean, I talk about innovation. I talk about strategic planning, but right behind that, or actually before that is human resource management, because I quickly learned you have to have good human capital if you want to continue to grow the business and certainly grow it in a sustainable manner. When my father passed away, he and I had worked together for 10 years and we grew the business from about 2 million to, to 10 million in that time period. He passes away and I start reflecting back on my first 10 years in the business and all. And what I recognized is that we would grow the business, then we'd plateau, and then we'd grow the business and then we'd plateau. And each of those plateau parts was a case where we didn't have the leadership we needed, the strength of, of people in the organization to carry us to the next level. So it took time to find and develop those people to get it up to the next level. I then recognized too that we didn't have anybody in our management team whose full-time responsibility was to address the human resource aspect of our business or the human capital. One of the first decisions I made after my father passed away was to hire a human resource manager whose full-time focus would be on the human capital of our business. And speaking of which, the, the, the metaphor that you use is you think that the HR function, and I'm now paraphrasing from your book, is to identify the right people on the bus and ensure that they are sitting in the right seat. Talk to us a little bit about why you believe that that is so critical and why you instituted that to attempt to bring, as you said, your company to the next level so that it didn't keep plateauing. You need to understand where you want to go with your business. You then need to understand what the structure of that business organization is going to have to be to take you to that level. Once you do that, then you need to know whether you have the horsepower within your organization to be able to implement that strategy. You can have a lot of good talent in your organization, but if they're not focused on doing the right things that play to their strengths, and if they're not working together, then you're probably not going to accomplish something. For example, you can have five all-stars on a basketball team, but if they all do the same thing, or if they've been assigned positions that don't play to their talent, and if you don't have good coaching, you're not going to be in a very effective team. I think the same thing is true in a business. You've got to have the right talent that supports the strategy and the organization to implement that strategy, and you have to have them in the right positions. And oftentimes we find, I mean, this is not unusual that you put somebody in one position and as the business grows, it may not be their best position. So you shift them into another position. You don't want to conclude that they can't do the job for your organization because maybe they're just not in the right seat. So is the role of this HR manager to basically understand that, who the people are, what their talents are, what their strengths are, and if they're playing to their strengths? I think that that is a role. The role of the HR manager, I think, is to create and implement the systems that allow the entire organization to understand that. And we do that through what we call our C-session. It's a playoff of Jack Wells's C-sessions that he had. Basically, it means the strategic evaluation of associates. And we have two sessions a year, one following our strategic planning session, and then another one following our business planning session, which is for the budget for the next year. And we sit down and as a senior leadership team and look at every person we have in our organization 
And what HR does is provide the background and the data around what each individual's strengths and weaknesses are, what their education is, what their own personal uh, career desires are. And we try to decide, hey, do we have them in the right role or could they play a better role someplace else? Do we need to invest more in their development to make them more effective in not just that role today, but what, where we see that role growing in the future? So the HR person is the person that provides that insight, but they got to provide the systems that allow that kind of data to be collected and brought forward to all the managers. And then they have to follow up to be sure that each manager effectively communicates with their team of people and sees that they get effectively developed and evaluated. So you talk a lot about development. And I know that you reference this in your book as well, not only for yourself, but for your employees, that you think coaches are critical to helping somebody with their development. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I know that there are varying opinions out there. Some people think if you're at the C-suite level, you don't need a coach. Even if you're at a perhaps below the C-suite level, if you do need a coach, then you're just failing. I myself ascribe to uh, the belief that you hold. I think it's spot on. that We're lifelong learners and we can all benefit from coaching. But speak to our audience a little bit about your beliefs on coaching and how you personally have benefited from that in your work with Seaman Corporation and even your family. I think because of my interest in mentors and my interest in continually improving and benchmarking, I was more receptive to the concept of of coaching for myself. Fortunately, we had a member on our board of directors uh, that I had, when we started building our outside board of directors, who we had used for uh, candidate assessments. He had a psychology background and did coaching. Um, I engaged him to just watch how I was handling my job of being president of the company. And he would sit in on meetings and watch how I would conduct them. And then after the meeting, he would give me some feedback that helped me understand how to maybe do a better job of that. That was some of the early experience and exposure that I had with coaching. It started again to crystallize with me was at a uh, YPO program that I went to out in California. One of our resources was uh, the then CEO of Charles Schwab. It wasn't Chuck, but it was, I can't remember who it was at this time. And he spoke to this about 125 CEOs in the audience about the growth and development of, of the Schwab investment company, which was very telling because it was very large at that time, I think 11,000 employees and all. And near the end of his session, he said, well, I'll I'll take one more question. And one of the people in the audience said, well, what what is it that you do to keep yourself in tune and go? And he simply said, well, I have a coach. And he says, all of my senior managers have coaches. He said, you know, an example, who's the best golfer in the world? And at that time it was Tiger Woods. And he said, you know, Tiger Woods always has a coach watching him because every swing he makes, he could vary in one way or the other. So he always has that coach. And so when I came back, I started to be more proactive about finding coaches for our senior managers. When we first started it, it was that one paradigm that you mentioned, you know, someone said, why do I need a coach? Is there something wrong with me? But it only took one or two people to go through that process for not only them to recognize that we were investing in their future, but other managers started to get in line for a coach. And so it has continued to be a very, very important part 
of our human resource management and development process. Let's take a short break for our sponsors. We will hear more from Dick Seaman, including how his adult children are involved in their family's enterprise. This podcast is sponsored and produced by SMB Interim Management and Yate Advisors. SMB Interim Management works with privately owned businesses that request assistance to solve significant time-sensitive operational challenges. SMB's core business is the placement of an interim C-suite executive to assist in solving critical operational challenges or to shepherd an organization through an unexpected departure. Their executives are uniquely matched to the industry and challenge for each assignment. SMB has a proven group of over 700 senior executives that can be deployed on short notice to solve the client's issues and then exit. Contact SMB at smbim.com. That's smbim.com. Yet Advisors helps law firms build family business practices. Through team coaching and consulting, Yate helps lawyers create demand for their legal services by recognizing their unique needs of family businesses. Yate will help your firm understand family businesses and develop solutions to their most important challenges. Find us at yatesadvisors.com, Y-A-T-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. You know, you mentioned starting this whole thing with coaching, even prior to this YPO meeting that you attended with somebody on your board. And I believe you mentioned that this was an outside board member. And by that, you mean a non-family member who sat on your board. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's turn to governance now, because I myself have been around many family-owned businesses, and there are varying views of all these different family owners about whether to bring outsiders onto their board, and if so, how many, and who those outsiders should be. So talk a little bit about your position on outsiders on a board and how they mix with family members on the board. If we go back to the beginning, uh, when my father was still living, we had a board of directors of four people. It was my father, myself, our vice president of sales, and our attorney. And we had a board meeting once a year because you had to have one for the records. Or anytime my dad wanted to make a capital expenditure, a large one, and he wanted board approval. Well, when he passed away, that was one thing that I, I really wanted to change to some degree. And I wasn't quite sure how to do that. But again, looking at other public companies and Rubbermaid specifically, I knew they had a board of directors that was a bit more formal than, than what we had. I recognize we're doing about $10 million in annual buy-in at that time. I was fortunate to be connected with a family business consultant out of Cleveland, who at the time was probably the guru in the country at that time. His name was Leon Danko. This is at a point in time when all of my brothers and sisters lived in Sarasota, when we had a division down there. So I spent a little time with Leon Danko, and he was very helpful both to me And then subsequently with my family, when he went and visited them to let them know that these, you know, small underlying kind of tensions we were having in the family business were not unique to our family business, but were pretty typical of all family businesses. (laughs) Uh, 
part and parcel of his advice at that time was to create an outside board of directors. When I asked him about who should be on my board, uh, you know, I said, I had just recently gotten in YPO and I said, how about some of my YPO members? He said, no, no, no. He says, you can get their advice anytime you want it. He said, and don't put anybody that you're paying as a resource consultant, like your banker or your accountant or your lawyer on the board because you're paying for their advice anyway. And you don't want your you know, senior vice president of sales on because you're paying him anyway for his advice. He's, he's not additive once he gets onto the board. You want people whose advice you otherwise not be able to tap into. He was valuable to my family. It was valuable to me as he spoke to my family because he convinced them early on that they shouldn't be on the board. They were shareholders. They were not necessarily governance people. And that opened the door for me to start to create this outside board of directors. I began then to kind of keep my eyes and ears open for people that I thought could be effective on the board and would make a commitment to, you know, to our, our business. And it took several years, I would say five years or so, to build it from this group of four insiders that we had uh, to a group of, I'm going to say, eight or nine, which at least six of them were true outside independent board members. And today, who sits on Seaman Corporation's board? Today, we have a board of 10 people. I'm obviously on the board as the chairman. Uh, my two daughters are on the board, uh, primarily so that they can get more experience around governance and being a better shareholder, active shareholder for the future. They convey the next generation's family interest very effectively. Our CEO is on the board, but he's, you know, he's, not a family member, so he, but he's um, an outside CEO. And for the most part, if you have an outside CEO, they're going to want a board seat, which is an important, you know, important role for them. Then we have six more that are truly uh, independent, non-family board members. Depending on how you, you look at it, it's still majority independent board members on our board. And actually, mo the, the family <clears throat> business boards that I've sat on, one I currently sit on and one I sat on previously, that's my experience too. It's typically a mix of independent board members and family members. I want to go back for a moment. Your father was the founder and whether he had the title or not, CEO. And then you then take over as uh, president at some point and then CEO. And now you mentioned that you have a non-family CEO. Talk to us a little bit about that transition, what that was like for you, and frankly, what it was like for your family. It was an interesting journey. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we knew that none of my children had an interest to be in C to be the CEO. Certainly not the next CEO. You know, as I was approaching, I'd say between my sixty-five and seventy years of age, leadership succession certainly was of concern to the board um, as well as, as to myself. Actually, where it got started was my COO, who was about three years younger than I am, went to the board and said, I would like to retire in two years. That got a real awareness before my board when they thought, well, we don't even have a successor for the COO role. And that's two years down the pike. And we're quite sure Dick probably doesn't want to go back to doing all the detail that the COO does. We decided to start a training program, identifying internal people and a, a leadership, more intense leadership training program, primarily to succeed my COO, that was gonna be the role, with the anticipation that that person could then become CEO. 
we selected two people that were high performing, high potential people. And we told them that what we're going to do is start you in leadership training, probably to fill this role that Jim Dye, our COO, is filling. And I don't want this to be perceived by either of you as a horse race, nor the organizations. So our education process included a leadership coach, more training at the Harvard Business School programs that they had, as well as spending time with me in our quarterly retreats that I would do with my COO. A business model that started to surface, or an organizational model, was one of co-leadership, because both of these individuals brought unique traits to this role, and it was really a, a case of two of these people in leadership um, one plus one might equal three in this regard. And they seem to get along really well. We were moving towards a leadership role where we would have co-presidents and then even perhaps co-CEOs once I retired. That worked well for a couple of years as they were co-vice presidents or co-executive vice presidents. And then what we saw was that one of the development areas, particularly around culture and compatibility of culture, seemed to progress more rapidly with one than the other. And we had a few situations that occurred that essentially got the board to recognize one of these people should really step up and, and not the other. So we made him one of them COO. Then we have our outside non-family CEO who had been with the business for 18 years. And so my family members knew him. And they were involved in this process, if not on the board. I mean, they knew what was going on. And so they were pretty comfortable with that. Let me stop you right there, because I think it'll be to those family members who are maybe not in management, but are more in roles like your daughters. I don't know if they're actual shareholders or shareholders to be. That doesn't matter. It's more they know that eventually the business is going to uh, come to them. Right. Tell us how you involve them in that process. Having gone through that process myself as the outside, uh, is a general counsel for a family business, I know how there can be having a voice versus a vote. I'd be curious how your family managed it and how you in particular helped them manage through it so that at the end, everybody felt comfortable with this new non-family member as the CEO. Well, one of the things that worked to our advantage was that none of our three children wanted to be CEOs. So they had an interest in, in, in finding somebody really good to run this business because they didn't want something to happen to me and then feel as though one of them would have to step in or what would happen. So they had as much of a vested interest in finding a really good successor to the COO and then CEO as, you know, as I did and the board did. I think the other part of it was that they had a lot of confidence in our board. One of the things we do is be sure that the role of the board, independent or otherwise, needs to know the family and the family needs to know them. So they had a lot of respect for the business acumen and experience of, of our board members. And there was a lot of communications between our board members and our family. And of course, two of those family members sat on the board. But even beyond that, we had good communications between the board, the search committee, which would be the leadership and development committee, and the, the children shareholders that we had. So it turned out to be really a, a smooth transition. I mean, they were, and they, and they knew this candidate really well. They knew both candidates really well. 
So they had just had an interest in how is it progressing? Is it going well? And they supported the decisions that the board made. Now, there is a rest of the story that the person we selected to be CEO, he was 53 at the time. And we had the full anticipation that he'd probably work another 10 years, including he had that anticipation. But he had some family health issues, not him personally. He decided he was going to retire at 58. <laughs> he told us in the fourth year, you know, I'm going to retire in a year. And that was a bit of a um, shock to the board and to the family because we thought we had, you know, probably 10 years. However, once he announced that, um, and we did not, I mean, John had done an excellent job and he had brought a few people in to strengthen the bench on this management team, but there was nobody that was really well prepared to, to step into his shoes. So this meant we had to do a full-fledged search there. And I, I looked at it as that, that's a good thing to do. Let's, you know, let's bring in a, a firm, let's not only give the board experience, some of whom had this kind of experience, but the whole board experience and my family experience that if we suddenly don't have a CEO, how do we go about trying to find that CEO? And so we hired a, a very good search firm who focuses on C-level positions for family businesses and had that person come in and start our search process. But we were able to find somebody and have them as CEO probably about six months before the previous one was going to retire. So it turned out and worked out very well for us. As, I, as my book points out, it's, it's not doing a lot of tactical stuff, but strategically trying to put in processes that can manage these kinds of situations that are always going to be on the horizon and embed them in a way that they can be utilized to assure the sustainability of what you're trying to do. This, in this case, it's sustainability of leadership changes that are going to occur down there. So I want to pivot for a moment to a potentially sensitive topic, because I know that you bought out your mother and your siblings and you referenced it. Um, and I believe it was in 1994. Can you speak to the audience about what led to that buyout and what you might recommend to those listening to avoid what the industry calls pruning so as to sustain ownership through the generations with multiple, you know, with all the branches? I don't know that you could ever avoid pruning as family businesses get larger and families get larger and larger. And the pruning is an excellent thing to do when you have future shareholders, family shareholders, who really don't want to make the commitment to that important stewardship role. And then what you want to do from a pruning process is to have it be as fair as possible. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with pruning per se. However, in our situation, you know, my father passes away. I have four brothers and sisters and my mother. They all live down in Sarasota. Uh, we have a division there. It's a struggling division. I'm in Ohio wanting to keep the Florida business going as well as possible because that's where several of my siblings were making their living. Over the course of time, what had initially been quite a bit of support for me after my father passed away by all of them uh, started to diverge in direction. There were a number of reasons for that. None of my siblings had work experience anyplace else, so they could only see the business as they would see them through the eyes of how my father looked at the business. Secondly, they were a thousand miles away. Even though we tried to keep the communication going, the day-to-day -day kind of activity 
wasn't there. My brothers and sisters were struggling to try to find out, you know, what was their role and where would they like to be? And they didn't want to be CEO. They didn't have any desire to have my job, but they didn't really feel comfortable in whatever it was that they were doing. So they went out on consulting contracts that we, we and the board offered them so they could maybe do some things that would help them better find what they want to do and perhaps come back in the business. And actually that turned out to cause more of a wedge on the communications side of things, such that we got very polarized because they selected a family, purported family business consultant who worked with them for almost a year before I even knew he existed. And we went separate ways and it took a while to try to bring that back. Several of my board members, independent ones, tried to help make that come back. We just didn't have any success with it. It resulted over a period of time of two and a half to three years of them getting legal representation to try to express to us what it was they were really looking for. As that unfolded, basically the only conclusion that their attorneys could bring both for them and, and to me was that they wanted to be bought out. And that took about a year to, to negotiate, but we did. We were successful at doing it. Uh, most of my board members said we were paying too much it was over 20 years. I've always felt that, you know, if the business is going to be successful, what looks expensive today is probably cheap if it helps you resolve some, some issues. That's the way ours unfolded. Again, I say it's to some degree unfortunate, uh, but I think it was just sort of the nature of the beast and the dynamics that were involved there. I knew when I did it uh, that it was probably a lose-lose because if I didn't run the business well, uh, there wouldn't be the money to pay them out. <laughs> uh, or if I were successful, then they would feel as though I cheated them. You know, it's worked out. There's been bumps in the road, but it, you know, it, it has worked out. Now, to your question about how do you avoid that kind of a pruning situation, I think you have to invest a lot of time in communications and, and education and having people together. What we learned was that we really have to over-educate, over-communicate to our children and now to our grandchildren. I can tell you a situation where intuitively after my father passed away, we tried to have sessions with my family, the four siblings, their families, the cousins and my mother. And we'd get together for a couple of days once a year at a resort and we have education and social time. And there was a point after doing this, I'd say we did it for four or five years where my family said, well, this is a waste of money. We're spending too much money doing it. We shouldn't do it anymore. And quite honestly, that was almost the fracture point that ultimately led to the separation. Again, creating these venues that don't appear to have anything to do with the business, but have a great deal to do with the successful ownership of the business and keeping alignment amongst family shareholders is important. It's almost like you were reading my mind when you said over-communicate and over-educate. So talk to me a little bit about how you do that today with your children and your grandchildren. And if you could share, if you don't mind, the ages of these people, because I think it'll help the audience understand where they are in their life cycles and all the things that are going on in their lives. Because I imagine that your grandchildren are very busy starting to create lives, their young adult lives for themselves. Well, our daughters are uh, 49 and 50 and our uh, son is uh, 
39. Um, but they've been involved in this process for 20 years. <laughs> and it's, I'm so grateful that they have been as engaged as they are and that they see this role as one of stewardship and not, not entitlement. And they see that because you know, today it's 400 families that work for us uh, and they recognize the importance of, of having a good business that maintains their livelihood. We have a family council. My oldest daughter, Carrie, is the head of that family council. And again, this has evolved really over years. It's got its own formal charter. It's got its own committees. Uh, it's got a philanthropy committee. It's got a governance committee. It's got a business liaison committee. And those committees are chaired by my children's generation or their spouses. We have uh, eight grandchildren that range in age from 21, and then it goes all the way down to five and a half in age. So the span is from five and a half to, to 21. We have an annual family assembly orchestrated by our family council, and we try to bring all generations in. And when we bring them in, Sometimes we'll have these sessions at one of our plant locations and we have interaction of them with our employees. The importance of that is for the employees to see that we have interested next generation owners of the business. So they don't have to say, well, what's gonna to happen to the business when something happens to Dick? And the other part is so that these grandchildren recognize that we're supporting the livelihood of very real people that are out there that are doing really good things for us uh, at that point. Uh, we look for resources to help with education. We're going to put education on, uh, you know, personal finance and things like that to help them be better young adults out there. We don't want to make them feel as though they're, they're obligated to go into the family business. You know, we want them to have the freedom to select the career that they have this passion for. By the same token, we don't want to overemphasize that and have them miss the opportunity that might be in the family business. Because if we can get family members who are capable and have a passion for the business, those are the best you know, leaders we could have within the business itself. So that, that's how we try to balance that. One of our family council committees is the education committee and they're constantly looking for ways to educate all generations. Dick, this has really been such a pleasure. I mean, really, and you are the epitome of how to perpetuate a family business through the generation. And what's fascinating, at least to my ears, is that it's not quite how it started. You know, you have your father and then you, and then it would have seemed like, okay, and your siblings will continue on and your nieces and nephews, and that's not quite how it worked, but yet you started it up again and you're doing it with your children and your grandchildren. And um, I, you know, I can't wait for 20 years from now and to see where you're all at and, and what's going on with the Seaman family enterprise, because it's, uh, it's wonderful to observe. And I do believe I, it's why I've spent a lot of my career. I believe that family businesses are the backbone of our country, if not our economy and maybe the world. And I, you're doing it, you're contributing to it. Your family's contributing to it. And thank you for all of this today. It's much appreciated. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the podcast and hear more from family business leaders who have addressed issues of critical importance to family-owned business. For more information about the podcast, 
SMB Interim Management, Yate Advisors, or Robin Lutchinger, visit us at FamilyBizLeadership.com. That's B-I-Z, Biz. FamilyBizLeadership.com. <laughs>